You are listening to the Comic Book Legal Defense Fund podcast. This podcast was created by the Comic Book Legal Defense Fund as part of our ongoing education program. My name is Alex Cox, and in this episode, we speak to Jenny Holm. She's the author of Baby Mouse and Squish, among other books, and she's also a current board member of the Comic Book Legal Defense Fund. Jenny is not only one of the most popular authors of graphic novels for children, she's also one of the most outspoken proponents and boosters for, uh, for kids' comics. And we spoke today about uh, a great many things, including upcoming projects, her influences, and the process that she uses to create these comics with her brother Matthew Holm, who illustrates uh, Squish and Baby Mouse. Throughout the podcast, you'll probably hear a little background noise, including a an eight-month-old baby. She sounds like she's angry, but she's actually just trying to chew her way through a teething toy, so don't be alarmed. And Jenny mentions this at the end, but I'm going to mention it again now. Uh, her and her brother Matthew will be appearing at Comic-Con International in San Diego at, towards the end of July this year, and I encourage everybody to go say hi to them and check out any panels that they're on. So here she is, and I hope you enjoy it. This is Jenny Holm. Um, I grew up in Pennsylvania mostly, and um, I think probably the most unique part of my childhood is that I am one of five children, and the other four were boys. <laughs> so, are you? I, where where do you fall in the five children? I'm actually the middle child. So, right in the dead center. In the dead center. And there's a very large age gap, too. Excuse me, a large age spread sure. among the children. But yeah, so I was the only girl, middle child. And so I grew up in this uh, very uh, boy household. And um, when I was growing up, there was you know tons of boy stuff around, like Matchbox cars and Star Wars action figures. I mean, we had the Death Star set up at one point. Um, you know, tons of smelly soccer socks, and sure. uh, and there were lots of comic books in our house. And um, all the boys, all my brothers, loved to read comic books. But really, it was like the boy in the house that started the whole comic book thing was actually our dad. Our dad was um, a much older father. I mean, he uh, he was in World War II, so that gives you a sense of his age. Sure. But he was a huge, huge comics fan, a huge comic strip fan. And his favorite comic strips are actually Prince Valiant and Flash Gordon. Mm -hmm. And so uh, when we were growing up, we actually had the bound volumes of Prince Valiant and Flash Gordon and Terry and the Pirates in the house. So I I grew up reading all of those. Um, I I especially loved Prince Valiant. Like there's a special place in my heart for him. Um, Just the beautiful full color panels. just how he could kind of tell like a story on a page. Like I would just stare at those and read them over and over again. Well, they were interesting because they were a, one of the few kind of prose mixes. They were more illustrated stories. They didn't have yes. like word balloons. So exactly, and they were just gorgeous. And some know? of them were just an entire page that was an illustration with kind of text interspersed. Yeah, I just I loved them. Yeah, they they're just, beautiful. Hal Foster was a genius. He was such a genius. Um, and then. You know, so I also, and we kind of had, we grew up with what what my brother Matt likes to call a hand-me-down library, Uh which is that um, 
our parents were very permissive and we could read whatever we wanted to read and so we just read whatever the other siblings were reading everything was everything was just pretty much left lying around the place which with five kids you know that's that's how it goes so like my older brothers were reading like original paperback mass market peanuts comics right which were awesome and then the little brothers you know big age gap later were reading Calvin and Hobbes Garfield um Matt went through a huge Bloom County phase, which then I um, latched onto the Bloom County phase. In the early to mid '80s, there was a real like spike in interest in newspaper strips, and that was, I think, Bloom County was kind of the the crest of that. It was. It was like the golden days. I feel like that was like a definitely a golden era. Oh yeah. For sure. And um, and I think we all loved. We of course read the funny pages um, in the newspaper. And but we we all definitely gravitated towards the collections. Like we loved when there was you know the collection the collected Bloom County. Like oh yeah, that yeah. was that was just like icing on the cake. Um, but of course I read all the superhero comics, um, the single issues because you know they were when I was growing up in the seventies and eighties, especially the seventies. They were you know easily available still in grocery stores, you know, kind of by checkout. And um, my mom. Um, she was, you know, her, her main goal in life was to kind of keep the calm. And so before we ever had like a long car trip, she would buy each of the kids like a brown paper bag full of single issue comics, um, to keep us quiet, you know, in the back of the car, in the, right. in the, in the station wagon. And that, you know, that usually worked for like five minutes. But, um, but, uh, I grew up reading all, you know, Superman and Batman and Plastic Man and Spider-Man and, you know, back in the day, there just weren't a lot of ladies in comics. Like the only, the only comic girl character who I identified with was I loved Alita from Prince Valiant, mm-hmm. who was, in retrospect, a pretty uh, progressive female character. Um, she, you know, she was still a princess, but she was very interesting because a lot of what he. A lot was a lot of what was in those strips had to do with politics of running a kingdom, and I thought that was very interesting. And mm-hmm. uh, so she was she was strangely, even though she was the oldest character out there. And then in terms of the, the more the more modern superheroes, there really wasn't much. I mean, and then I mean, in newspaper strips, I guess there wasn't really either in modern newspaper strips. Bloom County was pretty much an entirely male cast. Yeah, and you know the women that were in the newspaper strips were usually moms, like for better or worse, and right. Blondie, of course, you know. Yeah, there weren't a lot of female characters in general that were not wives. You know, Bloom County started out with what I guess the teacher, Milo's teacher, was like a main character for the first year or two. Do you remember her? I do. I do. She was and Cutter John's girlfriend, and she would sit in his lap great. in the wheelchair. Probably a lot of the Bloom County actual humor, in retrospect went over my head a lot of the adult humor in the strips i didn't quite get at the have, time, have you been rereading them as the as idw's reprinting them no i haven't i i should i should just read them now with like a fresh eye because you know they're, they're amazing funny. yeah it makes me wish that i was a, a full-grown adult when i was reading them because you know and they they were very of the time and i yes. had no idea about any of the references but they're really really funny but sorry, I'm getting us off track. So let's go back to when you start your writing career. 
I, I actually started um, writing novels first for um, for children, middle grade fiction. Um, so the other thing I mostly write is historical fiction for children, uh-huh. um, inspired by family stories. But um, at one point, Matt and I, we were both living in New York City, and we really wanted to work on something. And I had just he he had known that I had always um, wanted to do something with a female character. Um, just so I could see myself, like the way that he could kind of see himself in Peter Parker, or that every boy can kind of identify with, like a regular teenage boy. We should um, clarify, Matthew is your uh, co-conspirator on Baby Mouse. Yes, yeah, so did, Matt did we mention is, that yet? Exactly. Yeah, so yeah. Matt is the co-creator of Baby Mouse and Squish. He's a cartoonist and illustrator. and. Yep. Okay. He, he does all the drawing. And was he, um, he was an older brother or a younger brother? He is the baby brother. He actually, he had a... Um, an interesting career. So he um, he started drawing from a young age. He was he was you know he loved strips, comic strips um, four panel. And so he actually started drawing his very first you know little four panel strip when he was in about sixth grade. And it was about this alien and his alien family. And it was really quite good though though for his age. Like I show I show it at um, when I go to school events, and the kids are pretty impressed. And then he went to Penn State, and he uh, drew the political cartoon for the state newspaper there. And then after college, he did a, you know, kind of what was an early web comic about aliens again. Mm-hmm. But then um, he was living in New York City, and he was actually an editor. He was a uh, writer and an editor for Hearst magazines, and so. Um, he was doing that, and I was working in advertising and writing, and so um, we were both used to being in these creative spaces where um, writers and artists had to collaborate a lot, and so that it it made working and coming up with Baby Mouse kind of um, a pretty easy uh, collaboration. Are any of your other siblings um, in, in the creative fields, or is it you and Matt? Pretty much me and Matt, although our the brother between us, he does graphic design. I, I kind of diverged you there. Let's roll back to, to the start of, of Baby Mouse. You'd already been published at that point? My first book um, was called Our Only May Amelia, and it's a historical fiction book that was published in 1999, and it was inspired by my, my dad grew up in a Finnish-American community in southwest Washington state, uh-huh. which was kind of a pretty unusual immigrant pocket and so it's really uh takes place in uh 1900 so yeah so um our only may amelia had come out and i had uh written other books i'd written another trilogy called the boston jane trilogy which was um historical fiction also and um matt and i were both living in new york and actually what happened was um i did a book for simon and schuster called middle school is worse than meatloaf which is a, a book about middle school. But it's, uh, it was kind of a, a new style of book at the time, and it took years to get published because of the art requirements. And it's, um, it's not a traditional textbook. It's like, yeah, I mean, I, I guess you could loosely turn it, uh, term it a graphic novel in the sense that it's graphic, but it's uh, like a visual book where you find out what's going on in a girl's life by looking at pictures of her stuff, like a picture of her locker, a picture of the front of her refrigerator, right. a layout of her computer screen. And so you infer what's going on in her life. And one of the things in the book was that she has an older brother who leaves funny comics on her door. 
And um, I took that because when Matt was growing up, he used to put comics on his bedroom door, and our bedroom doors were across from each other. And so I just kind of randomly asked my editor, um, I'm like, can Matt draw the comics for this book? And I think it was like five comics maybe. And she said, sure. And I'm like, all right. And he um, he knocked him out like in two weeks. And it was so easy. And um, and so that was kind of the precursor to Baby Mouse. So then when we came up with the idea for Baby Mouse, we had already worked on something together. Cool. So talk, let's talk about the, the genesis of Baby Mouse conceptually. Yeah, so Baby Mouse kind of um, – I – you know, I'm definitely not one of these writers who sold their first book and quit their day job because we were living in New York City, so that doesn't happen too often. Well, let's let's do this real quick. Um, yeah. A lot of people that are listening to this are going to know uh, what Baby Mouse is and are going to be sure. fans already. But if somebody's yeah. not familiar, is there like an easy website they can go to and just get an idea of what it looks like and, totally. and what we're talking it's, about? Yeah, so head on over to babymouse.com. B-A-B-Y-M-O-U-S-C.com. And you'll get a, a an intro of Baby Mouse. Baby Mouse is a a graphic novel and it's um, 96 pages in black and white and pink. And it's about a mouse who is a girl and the trials and tribulations of her daily life. And um, she has a huge imagination. So she she dreams very big. So the books are really about her. Her, how her dreams kind of like take over her life sometime. Okay, cool. So we can roll back to you're living in New York. Right. So we were living. So Baby Mouse is really like we like to say it's a subway story. I was in Brooklyn. He was in Queens. Um, I I'd had I was still working in advertising. I used to be a broadcast producer, so I produced television commercials, and um, which was fun, but also a super demanding job. And so that left my writing time for, like, late at night, early in the morning, on the subway, on the weekends. Um, and so I think I came home from, like, a particularly rough day at work. And I was I was standing in our kitchen in Brooklyn and just cranky and irritable. And my husband said, wow, you look, you look really irritated in this kind of this image of this, you know, mouse with, you know, crazy whiskers and her hands on her hips and giving a little expression on her face popped into my head. And I... I drew her on a napkin, you know, and the next time I saw Matt, I, I, I gave him the napkin, <laughs> which we have since lost, for the record. Oh, um, no. Nobody but kept the napkin. That could have gone into the, uh, the home memorial library in 100 years. <laughs> exactly. I know. I'm like, you threw it out. He's like, I think I used it with Chinese food. But, um, <laughs> yeah, so we, um, we came up with a sort of a small pitch of a day in the life of Baby Mouse. And we took it out. And so this would have been around 2001. We took it out. And um, we were completely unsuccessful. We couldn't um, sell it to uh, any of the publishers. We, we took it primarily, I should clarify, to children's publishers. Mm-hmm. Um, because that was my world. And, I, and um, so I, I was familiar with that world. And um, it was just, at the time, it was just a real stretch for a publisher to get behind I think printing a comic, they didn't know how to do it. There was like a, you know, technological issue, but there was also a little bit of an ideological issue of, you know, we didn't get a lot of buy-in from the concept that girls would read comics. So we, um, you know, we kind of took it out, got turned down everywhere, put it, put it back. 
I mean, I, I kind of thrive on rejection, which is okay. I just, I usually just get rejected and then I have to, um, get my back, get, get, get tough again. So, um, we put together a much more elaborate pitch this time. And I'm, and I pretty much said, I need to be the one to take it out. Like I personally need to go to the publishers and, um, do like a dog and pony show in the sense that really communicate our vision. So, so making baby mouse a girl was absolutely intentional. It was designed from the start. Yeah. I mean, that was, so that's what's become very interesting. So we deliberately went in saying, you know, we are going after girls. And so that was like, originally that was part of our battle was to convince people that girls would read comics. Mm -hmm. Um, but then once Baby Mouse has come out, we have had our own assumptions um, flipped back in our face because boys are huge readers of Baby Mouse. You know, they are 50% of the audience. And they do not, we just assumed because of all that pink on the page that we would be turning off the boys. But they don't care. I mean, we have boys come up to us all the time wearing pink shirts and bringing us Baby Mouse dolls. And they, they don't care at all. So that's been, um, so we learned something too. (laughs) Sure. I found that there's not really gender distinctions like you might expect. Um, do you know magic Trixie, Jill Thompson's series? Yes. She's amazing. She's spectacular, but that series, boys, girls, it wasn't even a conversation. Yeah. Um, and the same with sardine, uh, in outer space. Yep. So yeah, I think it was part of it was just, um, I think part of the thing that we approached Baby Mouse is we really wanted to get it directly into the hands of kids, and so we designed it to be um, affordable. That was really one of our goals. We really wanted kids to be able, like an average kid, to be able to spend like five bucks and get a comic, which sounds like an insane amount of money now, really. But because when we were growing up, comics were not five dollars, but that's like allowance money now. And um, but we also really wanted to have them in libraries and schools because that was where I was used to being in um, for the children's market. So, um, you know, kids get most of their books from their teachers and their librarians. And I have to say, um, right out the gate um, when Baby Mouse was published, our most ardent supporters were public librarians um, at public libraries. And they, and librarians in general, actually, they really... um, they really got it, and I think just because they see what their patrons, you know, what's circulating in their library, they can see, like, live stats. Um, so they were incredibly enthusiastic. And Was there any pushback from the start because it was a comic, because of the format? We No, we didn't really have too much pushback. So I have found, and I'm sure you have too, that librarians are, are loving the graphic novel kind of explosion in, in the library world. For sure. Maybe one in a hundred have a real hard time selling it to their local library director or other people that work in the library. We've been on the road talking to people about this for about 10 years now. So, and it's been amazing to watch it change because when Baby Mouse first came out and it was shelved, it was shelved next to uh, early readers like Magic Treehouse or Junie B. Jones. And since then, graphic novels have their own shelves in libraries. They have their own sections. You know, in elementary school, they have, a, you know, in a public library, you'll have like a younger reader graphic novel section. You'll Usually you'll have a middle school graphic novel section and a YA section and an adult section. So that's how much the, it's exploded. So. Oh, yeah. 
Uh, where where do you prefer to be placed in in a library um, when it comes to you know, would you rather be with graphic novels or would you rather be with kid lit or would you rather be in? Oh, I def I mean, we would definitely, um, we would like to be in, you know, on the floor in the kids room, like where somebody dropped the book after reading it. Right. <laughs> so we'd like to be in the uh, elementary shelf in the library or the middle school shelf. We have a lot of middle school readers um, in the sense that, you know, middle schoolers, of course, uh, you know, generally speaking, um, can have mastered baby mouse, like the, the level of reading, but it's a comfort read at that age where like, I feel like my comfort read was peanuts. Like if I, you know, middle school, when I had a bad day, I'd come home and I would just reread that same volume of peanuts over and over again. Right. So, well, the age range on baby mouse is fairly wide. I mean, you could probably start very early elementary up into, you know, 13 or 14. Yes, and that was something we didn't realize at the time. So we kind of did create it, we thought, for like a third, like our ideal um, reader at the time was a third grader. But, um, you know, since now being out in the world and having kids and seeing how kids actually read, it's picked up in first grade is where it's like super sweet spot is first grade. But they don't like, they don't get the humor yet. They don't necessarily get really a lot of the storyline, but they're getting the the general um, how to read part of it. Um, but yeah, so it really spans first to middle school. Yeah. And then we have our alumni, which we call our Baby Mouse alumni, who they come up to us and say, teenagers say, I grew up on Baby Mouse. And we we cry a little inside because that means we're old. But <laughs> Well, or adult librarians who came to it yes. as adults that love it. There's a lot of those folks. Yes. No, we've, we've met a couple recently who have have permanent baby mask tattoos so that's you you've stepped into a new world we have that to, was crazy to paraphrase obi-wan kenobi i know right the current state of baby mouse how many volumes are out what's what's going on how long are you going to do it to well, give me just, a yep we just had the 18th baby mouse came out mm -hmm. just crazy it came out two weeks ago it's called happy birthday baby mouse and um the next baby mouse book comes out next spring and that's um Bad Baby Mouse, Bad Babysitter. And, uh -huh. you know, we'd like to have it, you know, go on as long as we can keep drawing. And we just had a, uh, it was a real fun moment. One of those, they, Random House created a, uh, a Baby Mouse, like, walk-around costume, like you see at, like, an amusement park where mm -hmm. somebody gets inside Baby Mouse. <laughs> so that just debuted. Aside from, uh, from Baby Mouse, you've also premiered Squish. That was two years ago, I guess? I'm trying to remember. Um, yeah, it was. It, I think it was longer than two years ago. Um, I can't remember when the first Squish came out. But, um, yeah, that kind of came out with uh, Random House said, you know, asked us if we'd like to do another series of in a similar style and trim size as Baby Mouse. And so we said yes. And, you know, Matt was looking forward to working in a different color. Mm -hmm. after, you know, so Squish is... Uh white black and green right yeah okay squish is an amoeba right he lives in a pond and um all of his friends are microscopic organisms like paramecium's and planarian flatworms and um hydras and this social situation of squish is more inspired by my brother's childhood matt you know um about him trying to just kind of get through life, survive without being killed sort of thing by the bully. Right. Um, Those are very and, high stakes. You know, but they are basic stakes for sure. kids, you know. Um, you know, 
what's for lunch, like a lot of very basic concepts. Uh -huh. And um, and so the, the the science part of it really grew out of our dad was a doctor. Our dad was a pediatrician and our mother was a nurse. And uh, so when we were growing up, our dad was very sciencey too. He used to keep um, uh, blood auger plates, petri dishes in our refrigerator to mm -hmm. culture bacteria when we were kids. Like next to the cottage cheese. Right. So we grew up with a fair amount of microscopic organisms in our house. So uh, it seemed kind of natural to do something a bit more sciencey. You can really so. trace the origin of squish directly back to uh, the refrigerator. Yes. Yeah. It's you know, and it was funny. We just thought that was normal, and you don't realize like what's abnormal in your childhood until you go out into the rest of the world and realize that most people don't keep petri dishes in their refrigerator. So. Um, so how many how many books a year is that that y'all are putting out? Is that averaging three? It's varied. You know, we have gone from with Baby Mouse and Squish combined, there have been years we've done four books a year to three books, and now we're just going to do two books a year um, with Squish in the fall and Baby Mouse in the spring, which is still an insane amount of work. <laughs> I want to talk about process just a little bit. Um, I don't know how boring it is for you to talk about process. Some people no, don't like to good. at all. Um, do you do any sketching? I mean, does Matt just completely take care of the layouts and the art, or do you hand him like doodles with ideas on how you want pages to look? So I think so. What happened was um, I don't know. I, it's always I find it always fun to hang out with other um, comic creators and see how they work because everybody works so differently, mm -hmm. and we had to figure out how to work together. In two ways. One, we've after we sold Baby Mouse, we immediately left New York, both of us. He went to upstate New York, and I moved to Maryland. So we had to figure out how to work long distance. And then we also had to figure out how to work with our publishing house in the most effective way possible um, uh, for everybody. And so what we do is um, we generally will come up with an idea together, like a story theme, and then... I'll do most of the writing, and we use a storyboard to write um, a classic ad agency or film storyboard, um, and we use that because I was just familiar with that. I'd worked in commercials for 10 years, and I, it's a very effective way of conveying visuals and dialogue. Um, so I'll write out the story, and we'll pass it back and forth, and once we're happy with that and our editor's happy with it, then he'll do lots of what he calls thumbnail sketches, just quick little pencil sketches on a notebook. And our process is a bit more like uh, the film process. So I never enjoyed very much being on a film set. Like being on a film set is kind of the most boring thing in the universe, in my opinion, because it's like watching paint dry. But I've always felt like the real magic happens in the editorial room. And I love sitting in editing rooms and I feel like I learned so much from editors. Um, how you can change the tone of something um, just by having a different image or a different frame speed or music here or lack of music. So we approach Baby Mouse kind of in an editorial film way where he gives me a lot of material and I, scans it in and then emails it to me and then I'll print it out and I'll actually lay it out. So he'll sometimes he'll give me a couple different options like with you know Baby Mouse staring at the camera um, a long shot, a medium shot, a wide shot. He'll draw it a couple different ways, and then I can pick and choose. Um, and so I that's, think it's that's yeah. really interesting. Do you know? I, I've never heard anybody else work that way. 
you know, it's it's really fun. It's and we've got it down. And I think, um, you know, we had to do it because there's only two of us, so we had to figure out a way to divvy up the work. Otherwise, it would be so art heavy that he would never get anything done. Sure. Um, but yeah, a, and so, a, assembling assembling panels that way is like that's very singular. Like I've never heard anybody doing it that way. You're approaching it like you're cutting together a movie. Like, exactly. like you might as well be on a steenbeck. Totally. Yes, a steam back. Yeah, yeah, I love those. Yes. <laughs> but that's um, yeah. crazy. I like. Well, I mean, part of that might just be that Matt's uh, a a easy collaborator because a lot of artists would just not allow somebody to cut up their pages and reassemble. But it sounds oh. like they they come that way. Oh, they don't. Yeah, they, nothing comes out in a page. I, I mean, I can send you, you know, just a page of his sketchbook. He literally just takes a, a sketchbook and just starts drawing. And sends it to me, and then I actually lay out the scene. So um, that's kind of amazing. Yeah, it works for us because he's 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 mellow, and and I'm mellow, and I think we've kind of had this um, like if one of us feels strongly about something, then we know that we should just do it. So right. Uh, do you know the game Five Card Nancy? No. It's on ScottMcLeod.com. And basically, they Scott McCloud and a bunch of his peers in in the in the olden days would take Nancy strips and from the fifties and Xerox them and glue them to pasteboard and then cut them into cards. And each person would play a Nancy panel on the table, and they would create strips by like placing panels down. Yep. Um. And this was the game, and then you'd vote on it each time. And all, all the rules are up at scottmcleod.com. But That's it kind hilarious. of sounds like like your process of assembling pages is like playing five-card Nancy, where you're just like looking at what you want and putting the next one down. Yeah, and so well, the, probably where it feels a little old school to me or not like very high-tech is that I just do this with um, glue and scissors. <laughs> so I just... No, that's awesome. Know. So then I'll, I'll, I'll lay out the panels and then I'll, I'll scan them and send them back to him. And then he, he will go straight to final. And so he, but he does his final digitally. So he'll do, you know, it using, um, a Mac with a Cintiq like, um, uh, top, but it's not a Cintiq. So like a, a Wacom tablet type thing with sure. a, a stylus. And, uh, yeah, so all the final art is done digitally. That's I'm still stunned about the uh, the panel layout. Ah, I used to. It's awesome. That. Yeah, I mean, I think part of the reason it also grew into this process was when we were doing the first two books, we did actually we produced Baby Mouse, Queen of the World, which was number one, and Baby Mouse, Our Hero, simultaneously. I can't remember what the original page count was. Like, I think it was started in the '60s, and then our art director. Um, would look at what we were doing and would say, well, why don't you spread it out? Like I would like a whole, you know, make it a splash page. And it kept growing and growing. And so we ended up at 96 pages. And you have to do that because you have a certain number of pages you have to print when you're doing a book. So we just got used to, to working that way. And we also had like our art director was kind of a living legend. Her name's Kathy Goldsmith. And she was Dr. Seuss's art director. Mm-hmm. So we felt, and she still is, and we felt like we were in very good hands. And and we were going to listen to her. So, Part of what makes comics an interesting thing for readers is that a lot of the action and a lot of the momentum happens between the panels. It happens in the gutters. 
which is another thing that Scott McCloud has talked about. But the idea is that it makes readers bring a little bit more. Uh, it's it's less of a passive medium because readers are supplying a, a lot of the the inference on the page. Yes. Um, and that goes back to, to Eisenstein and that goes back to a lot of film theory. And in the process, you're applying that. And I'm just wondering if that, you know, th that different kind of thoughtful approach to the creation of it is how that affects the end result. I mean, that's probably for a, a completely different podcast, but that's a very deep question. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> But it's so interesting to me that you approached it that way. Yeah, you know, so I guess it was because I had just two really different, my, the writing, the historical fiction and the novels is, it's just such a different creature. It's a, it is definitely a collaborative process also, but mm -hmm. it's more, I find my collaborators with um, the novels are, of course, my editors, but also there's like a, a second tier of collaborators, which is, um, which is like history itself and historians. So I, I talk to a lot of historians and all the time when I'm working on my novels. So um, that's sort of the other level of collaboration I have. Before yeah. you started working with Matt, like in a in a work collaboration, were you all very close or? So, you know what, we, we did not know each other very well when we were kids, which is a strange thing to say. No, no, it's, it's not strange at all. Thank so um, he was the youngest brother, and so he's six years younger than me. So in within our house, he was the uh, little toddler in the playpen in the kitchen when I was growing up. Right. And then I was out of the house when he was just, you know, in high school. So I missed him becoming a human being, kind of, you know. And what happened was I was living in New York City, and I had this tiny studio apartment. I had this black Ikea couch, which um, hosted so many young young you know fresh out of college kids as they came to new york to look for a job or to see if they wanted to live there and my brother was one of them he got an internship at um, hearst magazines and so he lived with me over a summer and to live in a studio apartment with somebody else you know it's a trying situation sure but uh he is very mellow he's super super mellow and it was easy and um and it was fun. It was fun to, you know, have somebody in the city who has the instant friends, instant same background. Um, and so we got on along so well then that um, we thought we could work together. I, I ask because having seen you two together on, you know, several different panels and, and interacting with people at different sh events and shows, there's a rapport that's very... And I don't know if it's just that you've been doing it for 10 years or you're actually that close. Um, but, it, it, you know, you finish each other's sentences and it's a very uh, casual closeness for, from the outside looking. Yeah, in. I mean, it definitely, you know, it's like living together was boot camp, you know, sure. that studio apartment. And then and then we, we were the, we were both in New York for a long time together for 10 years. Mm -hmm. So we saw each other all the time. Yeah. And then when you work with somebody, you just start to. Um, finish their sentences. <laughs> sure. <laughs> Literally. Y'all just, you seem to be on the same rhythm, and I just wondered if that was the way it was from the start or if it, if it came from working together or. You know, he's, we both, I think what had also helped was that, um, we you know we both paid our dues in the corporate world, in a creative world, in the corporate world of, um, 
working in large environments where we had to learn how to deal with artists and writers and creator, creative directors and we're, you know, and so we don't take it personally if we don't get our way on something. Sure. You know, that's, that's just part of the process. So we never brought that to the table. So, and, and he was an editor, so he was used to editing other people and I was used to being edited. So um, that made it a whole lot easier. So you and Matt are both going to be at Comic-Con International in uh, San Diego this summer? Yes, we're both going to be there because we have uh, the other exciting thing that's happening is um, uh, we'll have the new Squish come out at Comic-Con. But the big thing that's coming out for us at Comic-Con is called the Comics Squad. And oh, right, a, right, right. The anthology. Yeah. So it's an anthology that's the same trim size as Baby Mouse and Squish. And it's by Random House. And what it is is, you know, we wanted to have, like, a fun comic book with lots of short comics by creators in the elementary space, really. Like, you know, people we work with, friends of ours, you know, talented people who are out there today. Matt and I and Jarrett Kruzowska, who's the creator of Lunch Lady, are the editors. And so our, all of our contributors are we have Raina Telgelmeyer, Dave Roman, Dan Santat, who did Sidekicks, mm -hmm. Dave Pilkey, Captain Underpants. Ursula Vernon, who did Dragon Breath, Eric White, and Gene Yang, who's done Avatar and American Boy in Chinese. And so, Eric has done uh, Frankie Pickle. Frankie Pickle. So basically, we just said, everybody, you have total creative freedom. You just need to do a short comic, and it's um, under the theme of recess. That's so really a like, who's who of kids cartoonists. Yeah, it was so much fun. Everybody did like uh, between like 14 and 20 pages and we're going to definitely there should hopefully be a panel because just about everybody is going to be there not not everybody but most of the squad is going to be there so. right you know what that book is that's the um, the New York stories of kids comics exactly right where they had Scorsese Coppola and Woody <laughs> Allen nice I love all these film references <laughs> um, cool and when is that going to come out that comes out July 8th so, so right be, before Comic-Con. Right before Comic-Con, yep. So that'll be our, our, our debut there. What would you recommend if you were looking at a, a group of kids um, right now and you wanted to get them interested in comics and you had a, a variety of ages and, and genders and, and whatnot, what would you tell them to, to be reading? Okay, I would say they need to be reading American Born Chinese by Gene Yang. I think they should be checking out Raina's book, Smile, um, Babysitter's Club, She's got a new graphic novel coming out called Sisters I've had a peek at. They need to be reading Owly and Amelia Rules and um, let's see. There's so many. Now I'm like, which ones? <laughs> <laughs> James Kolchoka. I always mispronounce his last name. I think it's Kachalka. Yeah, there, Kachalka? there's – uh, he has a ton of good kids' books and I always, I always forget how many good books he has between Pinky and Stinky and uh, Dragon Puncher and – he just keeps putting out good books and yep he's great yeah Kazu Kibuishi Amulet um Dave Roman Astronaut Academy who else there's so many um but that that would be like a good smattering to just get them started and that's then... a great start yeah that's that's a that's a pretty top-notch lineup for a, a start yeah I think that'll that'll, I... that'll set them on the road nicely I, I guess the, the, the point here is that it's a, a good problem to have, but there's almost too much good stuff for kids right now. There is there is so much that they literally, you know, can have different sections and different ages in the library. And it's a good problem to have. Yeah. A good problem to have. 
Awesome. Well, thank you so much for, for taking some time to talk to us. Um, oh, it was great to be here. And I encourage anybody who's at a, a convention or a literary conference that you're attending to check out any panels you're on because they're always really interesting and they're always lively and uh, kids always seem to have a great time at them. Okay, awesome. All right, thank awesome. you so much. Okay, thank you. I want to thank Jenny again for taking the time to talk to us. The Comic Book Legal Defense Fund is a 501c3 nonprofit, and we depend on your donations to continue the work that we do. You can donate by visiting cbldf.org and clicking the donate banner. Uh, this podcast and all of our education programs are made possible by a donation from the Gaiman Foundation and from the financial support of listeners like you. This month, from the 23rd to the 27th of July, you'll find the CBLDF at Comic-Con International in San Diego, California, along with uh, Jenny Holm and Matthew Holm and, uh, you know, a million other awesome guests. Please stop by the booth if you get a chance. Um, if you have any comments or questions about the podcast, you can shoot us an email at info at cbldf.org, leave a message on our Facebook page or, or Twitter at us. This podcast was produced and edited by myself, Alex Cox, and the music this week was again provided by Django Reinhardt. Thanks for listening.